before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by CAPS Managing Editor from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's been a while since we last touched on all the amazing things that are going on in Nigeria right now. It's been a really interesting past six or seven months. Let's just kind of bring everybody back to last week. In fact, there was a latest meeting of a working group Chinese stakeholders have organized. And this this group includes Chinese companies, Chinese diplomatic missions in Lagos, Abuja, and elsewhere. Also, the Chinese Public Security Bureau from China. And they are all getting together regularly to talk about the worsening security situation facing Chinese companies and personnel in Nigeria. Also, Kobus, we're in the political season now leading up to next year's presidential election. And that's been very interesting to watch how we see a pattern that's consistent in a number of African countries where in the run-ups to presidential elections and even general elections, the question of Chinese loans, Chinese collusion with governing elites, and the role of the Chinese writ large tends to become a central issue. We're seeing it in Kenya. We saw it last year in Zambia. And obviously, we're seeing it right now in Nigeria. So, Interesting to watch the developments that we've been seeing unfold in Nigeria lately. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You know, it's, it's also also because Nigeria is one of the countries that's really, I think, being very strongly affected by by bigger shifts in, in how Chinese, China is engaging with the global south. Particularly, we've seen um, Nigerian officials being quite vocal about the changes in lending, for example, from China to, to global south countries and the, the pullback in lending, particularly from, from Chinese policy banks. Um, and raising questions about how that's going to affect infrastructure in Nigeria, for example. So it's it's you know Nigeria is this, is just such a huge and dynamic country, and it, it you know it, it it's a it's a, an important indicator all the time, but it's particularly an important indicator about where the continent's relationship with China is heading. Well, there is a lot of negative news to focus on. There's also quite a bit of positive news as well. Nigeria remains one of the top five destinations for Chinese goods in Africa. So it's a very important trading partner. It's also the hub for fintech investment. Chinese VCs are still investing in the the tech hubs of Nigeria as well. In fact, just this week, we've heard about the launch of Let's Chat, which is ByteDance's. They're the parent company of TikTok. Last March, they quietly launched this new app for African teens, and their focus is on the big consumer markets, including in Nigeria as well. So again, it's this interesting dynamic mix of 
really concerning trends at the same time as lots of optimistic trends that both collide together. So we wanted to get a perspective on everything that's going on in Nigeria, and we were thrilled to have the chance to speak with FM Ubi, who is an associate professor and the acting director of the Research and Studies Department at the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs. FM has this amazing overview of all the key issues, and what's great about his background is that he's done research in China. He knows quite a bit about the China-Nigeria relationship and how it fits in within the broader China-Africa relationship. Let's take a listen to our discussion with FM Ubi. Dr. FM Ubi, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and a very good afternoon to you. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the program for the first time, and it's a really wonderful opportunity for us to talk about the current state of Nigerian international relations. There's a lot going on in the world. You have a very important election campaign that's now starting to get underway. Let's start with China, and we'll get into some other topics later, but how would you assess right now where China-Nigeria ties are in 2022 after quite a turbulent past few years in China-Nigeria ties? Well, I, I would say the relationship, it's quite uh, robust. Um, you know, um, when you take into consideration a whole lot of factors like um, their relationship in trade, um, infrastructural development, you know, and um, a host of other uh, diplomatic uh, relations. I think uh, um, uh, as a whole, yeah, if you have to look at China-African relations and have to be specific, uh, bringing in Nigeria, I think uh, the relationship is quite good. It's quite good. Um, it's mutual in a way. You know, as, as Eric mentioned, the, there's all of these strong infrastructure ties between Nigeria and, and China. But we've also seen in the last while acknowledgements from the from Nigerian officials that China has largely stopped funding large scale infrastructure. How are you see how do you see that shift changing the relationship? Yeah, it's going to be uh, very difficult um, for many countries, including Nigeria, if uh, China has really stopped uh, or reducing its funding on infrastructure. And so it's going to affect Nigeria specifically because uh, we have a lot of projects ongoing um, in relation to infrastructural development, like the railways, um, which uh, I would prefer to be holistic, uh, transport uh, infrastructure, the rail lines, uh, railways, uh, road uh, transport infrastructure, the aviation um, uh, infrastructure, like the airports. Though they have, they are handling a few airports in Nigeria. Uh, some few weeks ago, um, the president of Nigeria, uh, uh, President Muhammadu Buhari, commissioned the Mortala uh, uh, Muhammad International Airport, which was uh, uh, finished, uh, renovated, and. Uh, uh, completed by uh, the Chinese. So um, I think with that, you know, with this uh, re reduction in funding, I think it's going to affect us uh, in a whole lot of ways, you know, um, which um, uh, we, we might begin to look for other uh, lenders or uh, donors, you know, with regards to upgrading and building our infrastructure. So that is what Transportation Minister Rotimi Amechi has been saying, is that they're going to start looking to Europe in particular for more funding, uh, talking in specifically about loans from the Standard Chartered Bank. 
Professor Ubi, you mentioned that the couple projects are have been you know are now in question. Let me just read through a couple of them just for everybody to be caught up to speed. There's the AKK pipeline between the north and south that was a billion dollars of Chinese money that now is in question. There's $11.2 billion of Chinese loans to build the Coastal Line Railway, $1.3 billion for a section of the Lagos-Kano Railway, and $3.2 billion of Chinese financing that is now in question for the Eastern Line Railway. That's more than $15 billion. When you and Minister Amechi talk about looking elsewhere for money, where else are you going to get that kind of money? It just doesn't seem like... You're going to get it from the private sector because they're going to charge too much and multilaterals aren't putting out that kind of money the way the Chinese were. Where else do you think Nigeria can go to borrow for its infrastructure needs? Um, definitely the other uh, uh, lenders or uh, institutions that are ready to uh, uh, provide that kind of uh, uh, funding for infrastructural upgrade and um, I think uh, we should also not forget the fact that uh, they uh, recently uh, there's uh, the, the new the new policy you know uh, or new framework that was set up by under or through uh, uh, Joe President Joe Biden you know, the BE3W, you know, I think that might also be another uh, angle in which uh, Nigeria and other African countries might be looking at. Um, definitely, uh, I would say that um, irrespective of the fact that uh, the funding is going to be reduced, um, uh, we should also not forget the fact that uh, recently, too, uh, there's uh, this... Um, uh, the government, too, is actually, like you said, uh, going into PPP, uh, public-private uh, partnership. And I think this is another aspect that we'll be looking at, although it's uh, it's uh, they might not really want to put that kind of money, you know, into something that they might, well, probably they might not get uh, returns, you know. Uh, but I think uh, there, there, there are ongoing discussion with regard to that, uh, with regard to uh, the, the private sector, the, the public-private sector. You know, there's an ongoing uh, discussion, you know, to see how the private sector could come in. And in any case, uh, there are a few uh, infrastructures in Nigeria where the private sectors are also involved, you know. Um, for the coastal rail, rail line, I think the private sector might not want to get into that because it's huge, you know, and uh, the kind of funding, you know, we are requesting, you know, like you said, it's about 11, between 11 and 12 billion. That is really huge. And I think we need uh, lending from outside uh, uh, the country. So we might be looking at uh, uh, financial institutions that are outside. I think this this might be areas we have to go. And you know, the new banks that have been set up, like the uh, Asian Infrastructural Bank uh, uh, or Development Bank, and uh, the uh, BRICS Bank too, might might be another source of funding. And African Development Bank, I think that might that might also be another uh, source of funding for to help Nigeria and other African countries upgrade their infrastructure and build more infrastructure. Yeah. So I think that might be the, the way to go. 
Segwaying to uh, to politics, the Transport Minister Rutimi Amaechi that 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 we mentioned earlier has come in for for quite a lot of kind of disinformation, um, like targeted disinformation in in relation to an upcoming presidential run for him, with a lot of a lot of opponents alleging that that his campaign is being financed by Chinese money. So I was wondering what you thought of that disinformation campaign. I I don't think that is really the case, and it might also be a rumor, you know, uh, conspiracy theories, you know, all over. Uh, much recently, uh, uh, the Chinese government uh, uh, has personally come; they have come out to say that is not the case. You know, the Chinese embassy, uh, some few weeks ago, came up with uh, the press release that they are not funding and based on their non-intervention non-interference but you know sometimes you know when you hear this kind of uh, rumors i think um, we just have to keep our fingers uh, crossed you know because uh, like someone uh, who wrote on it said there might be an element of truth in it but uh, i don't think for me i don't think that is the case and uh, nigerian would not even allow that kind of thing to happen you know where a foreign country would want to sponsor a candidate you know uh, if uh, because it is not even allowed in the constitution so i don't think that is uh, the case well it's not even the fact that it's not a case it's not the way that china behaves they don't actually back individual candidates from different countries especially in africa it's just not the way they operate. And this is all part of their non-interference doctrine in the internal affairs of other countries. In fact, earlier this year, two representatives from the Chinese embassy in Abuja paid a visit to the headquarters of the national chairman of the People's Democratic Party for what many people saw as China communicating directly with the with the APC's opposition party. And again, in that sense, it's, it's an evidence of China really trying to build relations with both parties. Uh, in, in the event of whoever wins, they'll have good relations no matter what. And so, again, it really points to these rumors of trying to attach Amechi to the Chinese is just not actually accurate in any ways. But what's the motivation behind trying to attach Amechi to the Chinese? What do you think the, the, the people who are doing that are trying to communicate? Well, um, it might also be for to forestall uh, uh, such future uh, future engagement if um, it, it it might uh, come up. You know, I think that might be the case. But um, you know, and um, uh, with his office, you know, he's he's the one that has been relating with the Chinese uh, much more with regards to you know infrastructural development. You know, and so you know that also might be one of the reasons people came up with such uh, uh, rumors. Uh, you know, uh, but you, I think I want us to take into consideration the fact that um, uh, much recently there has been this uh, interparty relations between uh, the Chinese Communist parties and other uh, parties in Africa. Uh, there have been series of meetings too, with uh, not just with the PDP, with even the APC. Uh, some few weeks also, uh, the Chinese had meetings with the uh, IPAC. I think um, uh, in Nigeria, this is a a, a, a meeting that has to do with all political parties and uh, and it's not the Chinese per se. I mean the Chinese Communist Party they came in and they visited uh, 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 this uh, joint uh, party affiliation you know to have a meeting you know and all that so I don't think uh, um, uh, the rumors uh, has any uh, has been substantiated and aside that like I said um, uh, those who might come up with that uh, uh, rumor might be doing that to undermine Amechi's uh, 
interest in uh, politics and also, you know, try to discredit him and all that. I think that might be the case, not for anything, you know. And right now, you know, there are a lot of uh, 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 contestants, you know, who are who, who, those who are ready to become uh, the president of Nigeria. They have bought a lot of forms and are all out there, you know. And so I don't think if that's going to happen in China, if that is going to happen, China might want to have a meeting with everybody because it, 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 it might not just have a meeting with Amechi, it might have a meeting with every con, uh, contender. I think that might be the case, but I don't think it's uh, usually the case, you know, with China, like you said, non-interference, non-intervention has always been their principles and they try to avoid that. You know, but then, you know, people had also raised cases, you know, of other uh, countries where China was, like the Zambian case, you know, which was also not substantiated. You know, this all this comes up, you know, I think it's a way to discredit China, it's a way to discredit even Amechi himself, you know. In relation to this to this issue, um, we've also seen in, in Nigeria uh, over the last two years or so, like a few times these big, uh, kind of big, what can I say? Kind of waves of reporting and waves of anxiety about the level of 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 Nigeria's level of of debt to China, and actually Nigeria's debt to China actually isn't very substantial. And the the government's debt management office several times had to come out and kind of debunk rumors, particularly of of asset seizures in in relation to this this idea that that China China will take over assets if if the country defaults on on debt. So I was wondering what you thought of that. Like, well, like, like, where do you think this kind of anxiety about Chinese debt comes from among the Nigerian public? You know, I I did uh, an article on uh, Niger- Nigeria's debt and um, and its sovereignty uh, sometimes. And you know, I think one important thing that we have to take into consideration in recent times has been misinformation, lack of information, and disinformation. And, you know, in 2020, you know, during that COVID-19 pandemic, a whole lot of uh, misinformation was out there. A lot of disinformation was out there, you know. And what happened was that, I remember um, I was watching the television and I saw a member of the House of Representatives, you know, saying that we're going to uh, agreement with the Chinese without understanding what we are signing, that the documents are written in Hangzi or in um, a Chinese character, and so we don't understand, you know. And I had to probe further. You know, I found out that, you know, you see, a lot of Nigerians don't have understanding of Chinese relationship with Africa and Chinese relationship with Nigeria. Now, agreements are written in two languages, Chinese language or the Mandarin, and it's also written in English. So when you sign these agreements, you, the, the, both uh, the countries have both uh, the English and the Chinese version, the same way, you know, they will give uh, the English to uh, and, and the Chinese version to the other parties. But with regards to debt, I also find out that Chinese we owe more to the West than even to China. Our, our debt profile with Chinese is about 3.1, 3.2 billion. Now, the, uh, the total debt we are owing is about uh, 25 billion. You know, and you know, if you subtract 3.1, 3.2 billion from that, you find that we are owing about 22 billion to bilateral loans 
and to multilateral institutions. And most of these are from the West. And so I think it's because they don't really understand that. And most, a lot of them just listen to what people say and react based on what people say and not what they have read and what they have uh, seen. For instance, when this happened, the, uh, the uh, Bureau of Statistics had to come up with Nigerian debt profile. You know, and you know, some of us actually wrote on it for them, for Nigerians to understand that we are not in as much as the people that uh, the, 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 the citizens are thinking that Nigeria is owing, you know, uh, about that 25 billion maybe owed to China, you know, just China alone. No, it, it's not. It's not really the case. I think the whole problem revolves around just misinformation, lack of information, and what the citizens wants to portray as disinformation, which, you know, they just put it out there on social media, Facebook, um, uh, WhatsApp, and all that. And, people, and a lot of other persons pick it up and start using that. I've seen a whole lot of videos on that. Somebody saying that they're going to take seize our, our, our infrastructure if we don't pay. But I think I have to make something, I have to make uh, a point very clear here. Now, which uh, uh, I, I wrote about it some times ago, that, you know, in our relationship with China, not just Nigeria, African countries as a whole, there are, in, with regards to infrastructure, there are three kinds of agreement. You know, China will decide to give you gratis. And gratis, they only give you with, with regards to uh, presidential palaces, cultural centers, um, uh, um, health centers, and schools. Now, there's another form of relationship you have, I mean, infrastructure relationship, like I said, that has to do with uh, percentage. You know, the Chinese government will decide to give you 70%, then the host country will bring about 30%. But I think what we have never taken into consideration is that in many of these cases, you know, the percentage form, you know, the kind of uh, relationship in infrastructure, what happens is, the when even when the Chinese companies or the Chinese government brings the seventy percent, the host countries never bring their thirty percent. They don't ever bring, and the Chinese company will actually have to source for funding to complete this project. And in many cases, you know, I remember I, 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 remember, I know that some countries sometimes give this infrastructure to the companies to run for a number of years to recoup back their their their, their payments, you know, their uh, their money injected into this uh, uh, infrastructure, and so in many cases it happens like that. It has I I I I I saw in when I was doing my research uh, uh, about eleven years ago, I saw a country that had to give back a particular infrastructure not you just ask the company to run it for a number of years to recoup back their money and so this is basically the case then the other uh, point is that sometimes the chinese government will handle the building and upgrading of this infrastructure 100 percent. that means the money comes from the chinese government everything you know and you know uh, the question i always ask and i want us to uh, ponder about this a country that sometimes could write your debt off or to um, uh, 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 ask you to renegotiate your debt, the interest rate, sometimes they write it off too. You know, how can that country want to seize your infrastructure? The Sri Lanka case that was raised, I think we later found out that it wasn't really the case. And as of today, as a few weeks ago, uh, they are renegotiating the, the loans again. And so I think 
Uh, this whole uh, idea of the debt trap and um, uh, China's infrastructure, I think uh, it's not really uh, true, you know, for me because of the research I have actually already taken and I really needed to understand what that means, you know. And even um, uh, 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 arguments, you know, uh, put up or writers put up by even uh, the John Hopkins um, uh, China-Africa Research uh, Institute, I think they have also come up with the fact that that is not really true. No, there's no evidence whatsoever to support the, the debt trap narrative. We've talked about that for many years on the program. You talked about the China's share of the bilateral debt, three billion out of twenty-two billion, which is not very much. But when you look at Nigeria's total public debt, which is now at ninety-four point seven billion dollars, the three billion dollars that China owes is tiny. It's insignificant. I mean, it's laughable to the point where how would a country with three percent or four percent take over another country's assets and whatnot. And that's why, I mean, it is it is kind of silly, but it speaks to a broader cultural insecurity. Given the hysteria over the past five and six years, this is not a new thing. This is a story that's been in the Nigerian media and on social media, and a real concern among Nigerians that they're losing control. In many ways, it speaks to the lack of faith that a lot of people have in their own leadership, So one of the comments that we hear quite a bit on social media is that the Chinese are working in collusion, that's the word that they use, in collusion with the APC and President Buhari against the interests of the people. They don't know what's in the debts because of the lack of transparency, and that fuels the anxiety. Also, other people have said over the years who we've spoken to that because of Nigeria's painful past with colonialism, that the lack of transparency and the indebtedness to a foreign country just feels like you're losing control again. Can you speak to this insecurity that the debt trap narrative speaks to? Of course, it doesn't have any validity. There are no facts to it. As you pointed out, it's misinformation, disinformation, poorly educated, poorly understood, whatever words you want to use to describe it. But clearly, it speaks to an anxiety that exists within the population. I kind of agree with you. The anxiety, you know, a whole lot has happened in the last couple of years, you know. Um, you know, where, where you see a country that was growing between 5 to 7% GDP per annum, you know, retrogress in just a few years, you know, and, you know, insecurity everywhere and the fears of the unknown, you know. And, um, and you know, uh, like, you know, when you come to Nigeria, there's so much... Um, uh, uh, unhappiness, you know, even with the Chinese, too many things are, are happening. For instance, the, uh, some few days ago, I was with some group of persons, they're complaining about the retail trade that's being taken over by the Chinese and all that. And, you know, and, and you know, uh, the, 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 the policies that govern labor not being implemented, even when contracts are, are being uh, given out, you know, the 70, 30% and all that. I think this is just all it's a build up of uh, anxiety like you said the build up of anger insecurity uh, 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 build up of uh, uh, the future that is unknown you know what happens you know and aside that like you know the the, the, the lack of understanding and and uh, clarity of what is really happening you know I think all that plays a very key role in you know the the position the stance uh, the citizens have you know on uh, our relationship with the china uh, with uh, with china 
We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Bonjour tout le monde. This is Jérôme Emma, host of the Afrique Chine podcast. If you speak French or if you just want to practice your French, then join me every week for the only French language podcast on everything going on with the Chinese in Africa. We are talking about mining, politics, culture, education, you name it, we are covering it all. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and also follow us on Twitter at AfricChin. That's Afrique with a K or online at projetafricchin.com. We've seen over the last while um, Chinese residence groups in, in Nigeria kind of raising raising concerns about about security, um, and also some discussions between high level Chinese officials and and Nigerian officials about public public security issues. Um, you know, do, do you foresee a, a, a you know kind of greater cooperation between Nigeria and China in relation to to public security, particularly around issues like Boko Haram, for example? Yeah, it has always been there, right from um, uh, Boko Haram gained a whole lot of credo, you know, when uh, at the heat of, you know, Boko Haram, we, we were looking out, you know, for help from uh, other countries, you know. And you remember the kind of problems we had to go through under the former uh, president, uh, Jonathan Goodluck, you know, when we had we had to ask for weapons, you know, wanted to buy weapons from the United States, you know, and they were refusing to sell. We also wanted to get weapons from um, uh, uh, Israel, except at the point, but, you know, they couldn't sell those weapons that we needed because um, those weapons came, they got it from the U.S. and all that. And the last uh, resort, I mean, we resorted to going to uh, uh, Russia and China, and China was willing to sell some weapons to us. Russians also were willing to sell weapons. We got some, you know, and um, uh, until you know when uh, Jonathan left and uh, our president, uh, the present president, came on board, uh, Mohamed Buhari. You know, same. You know, we were able to get few uh, weapons. We necessarily get funding from that. But China has always played this key role. But you know, um, I had written on uh, the role of China you know, in Nigeria's insecurity. But you see, the kind of role China play because of uh, their non-interference and non-intervention, it's mostly advisory. You know, um, they don't really want to get involved, you know, but uh, uh, they just want to, you know, they tell you what to do to mitigate this insecurity. You know, for instance, um, uh, uh, there's an, an approach uh, which I developed, it's called the PPSA, uh, Preemptive Peace and Security Approach, you know, uh, which uh, which I use to discuss China's role in Nigeria's security, you know, which is they try to look at uh, all those factors, uh, uh, factors like um, poverty, that you know, Nigeria government should try and see how to create employment, you know, eradicate poverty. With all this, you know, uh, we can mitigate insecurity, mitigate Boko Haram. Uh, but you know, I think um, uh, uh, my argument is that China had to, at a point, they will have to change their their policy, you know, of non-intervention and non-interference because everybody's affected by insecurity in Nigeria, you know. Uh, they are also affected. I think they are one of the countries that are really affected because they are kidnapping them and killing them. Consistently, you see that in the news and all that. So I think they have to change their approach, you know, with regards to helping countries in Africa and precisely uh, Nigeria to fight insecurity. 
security. So looking forward um, into the future, the the relationship over the over the last 20, 20 years, the relationship with with between Nigeria and China, I think more than many other African countries, have been very dynamic. You know, it it you know it's, uh, some some of these kind of areas of very strong engagement, like oil trade, for example, has receded. Um, we've seen the rise of infrastructure and now maybe the receding of infrastructure as, as a core part of, of, of the relationship, depending on how Chinese in financing goes in the future. Um, how do you see the relationship evolving over the next the next few years? Like, we, what, what are areas that you're seeing kind of emerging as new forms, the new areas of engagement? In the, I, what, what I see in the next few years uh, is predicated on uh, the government in, in, in place you know, and what the government wants and how it's going to relate with the Chinese uh, government, you know, uh, in achieving whatever we're looking for. But I see a relationship that is mutual, you know, but I, um, the problem will be with regards to certain uh, fundamentals and basics like the transfer of technology. You know, which is what we are asking for. You know, um, uh, like I always say, we have to hold uh, China tenaciously for a promise to transfer technology. You know, you, 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 you know, it's one thing to promise and another thing to implement that promise. And that is exactly what we are looking for in the future. Because if not, you know, without technology, we can never be on the same par with China in terms of trade. The trade will remain very, very imbalanced, you know, because uh, they are developing in a very rapid rate, you know, uh, an, an unprecedented rate. And while the African countries, you know, like Nigeria, it's not moving, you know, with regards to technology. I think this is an area that we really need to build up especially in ICT, you know, um, um, if we can, you know, hold Chinese to that, to that promise, you know, I think we can get a bit, uh, uh, we can get uh, um, uh, up there, you know, uh, in terms of uh, that relation, our relationship. Then another thing is that the relationship, you know, uh, will have to be such that we have to gain maximally, you know, uh, with regards to uh, issues like uh, um, um, infrastructural development. You know, like you said, the funding is getting, uh, the, the Chinese are cutting funding, uh, but I think we need to renegotiate, we need to, re uh, to, to, to discuss with them and see how they could beef up funding for Nigeria's infrastructural development. And again, that depends on our negotiation with the Chinese. If, you know, if the next government comes, you know, I think if they're able to negotiate and uh, uh, mutual uh, beneficial relationship in that negotiation, I think that might also help in a way. Um, with regards to security, we need them to play a very prominent role. You know, it's not just advisory role like they always do. You know, we need them to play in terms uh, roles in terms of intelligence gathering, in terms of uh, um, uh, uh, donation of weapons. You know, to fight insecurity, and 
maybe um, also look for ways, you know, to join the other countries that are already part of uh, the concerted effort to fight this culture in the Sahel. I think they need to, because as a matter of fact, they are Chinese are everywhere in the Sahel. And those regions where insecurity is, they are all there. So I think our relationship in the future must have to actually look into that direction, you know, how to mitigate this insecurity across Africa. And much more importantly, you know, build a robust relationship, you know, um, with China. Dr. Efemubi is an associate professor and the acting director of the Research and Studies Department at the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs. Dr. Ubi, Thank you so much for your time and your insights. It was absolutely fascinating to speak with you, and we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it for having me. Kobus, what a treat to speak with FM, and it really shows the complexity of the China-Nigeria relationships, and there's so many aspects of it that are truly unique to Nigeria. Just because of the breadth and the scale of, of what happens in Nigeria it just doesn't happen in, in in most other African countries. Yeah, absolutely. In that sense, you know, kind of Nigeria basically sets the tone, you know, for 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 larger African Africa China kind of talking points. Um, and a lot, you know, we, we see a lot of discussions emerging in Nigeria and then kind of moving on to other countries. So it's really really important to kind of keep a finger on the pulse there. Well, we're going to have a couple more shows coming up very soon about Nigeria, just to dive into some of the other issues that FM kind of touched on. We're going to go in more detail with that. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, very quickly before we go, Kobus, though, it was a very big week uh, in China-Kenya relations. And there was a very big experiment that, that is now unfolding before us with the opening of the Nairobi Expressway. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, the the experiment side of this is the fact that the expressway was was funded um, by the by the contractors, by the Chinese contractors, and they'll be recouping their 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 outlay through collecting tolls over the next twenty seven years. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether it's successful. If it is, then it'll be a, a big shift forward for Belt and Road-related um, infrastructure projects because it'll it'll allow uh, another option where they can actually get infrastructure built without massive loans. Um, you know, if it doesn't work, then we we're in for I think uh, you know a, a few years of of kind of China being blamed for for a lot of kind of issues in Nairobi. Um, one of which is uh, you know already what we're already seeing is kind of emerging kind of class divide between people who can afford the tolls and those who can't. Um, you know, so so either way, it's going to be very revealing about the future of of Chinese infrastructure. I think all through the global south. So there was a lot of excitement over the weekend because they did a trial run and they let a lot of social media influencers and media come in and they were just zipping down this thing at 90 to 100 kilometers an hour, about 55 miles an hour. And they said, how amazing, this was great, it's incredible. And they're, they're getting all this kind of great buzz. And then as they started to open up the expressway a little bit more to everyday commuters and motorists, uh, what ended up happening was it started jamming up, in part because a lot of people were having some difficulty with the new automatic toll passes that they have and the fact that you can only use those toll passes or cash. They have to be displayed in a certain way or else they don't register and the gate doesn't open. So there's a lot of confusion at the tolls, and that caused a lot of backups. 
And then people started getting some sticker shock. Let me just read you a couple of the tweets here from some of the early reactions. So this is from uh, from one user. He said, I used the Nairobi Expressway from Wessons to Malongo. That's about 20 kilometers. It took roughly 15 minutes driving at 90 kilometers an hour. At the exit, my balance was 4,601, meaning for that stretch, I was charged 399 shillings. You can't use the expressway every day. It's just too expensive. And Cobus, the pricing of the tolls is going to be dynamic according to the dollar shilling rate. So as the shilling depreciates, the price of the tolls may in fact go up. So if this person thought it was expensive today, they better keep an eye on the on the exchange rates because this is going to change and fluctuate quite a bit. Yeah, we also covered, um, I think, of, uh, last week or the week before, that there was um, there's a China Road and Bridge Corporation, which is the the uh, contractor on the Nairobi Expressway, also built a similar kind of toll-funded road road in Cambodia, I believe, um, where the tolls were much higher, like um, you know, several times higher. So nineteen dollars. Yes. So it'll be very interesting. I think I think like there'll be some real kind of like social media resistance against those kind of tolls in Nigeria, in Kenya. I mean, and and it'll be um, really fascinating to see how everyone deals with that. So a little footnote here: the China Road and Bridge Corporation that built the Nairobi Expressway has now been given a nine billion shilling contract to build, rebuild, should I say, the Mombasa Road, which passes right underneath it. This has been a point of contention for. Uh, activists and for people who are have been complaining about what you talked about about the class divide that's going to exist that rich people are going to be able to zoom quickly up on the Nairobi Expressway above and people below are going to be trapped in this mess of traffic and who those who can't afford to pay the 400 shillings for example in those so it's going to be interesting the disappointment that I had about reading the news, seeing that CRBC had been granted the contract to rebuild Mombasa Road, is that this would have been a great project to give to local contractors. And this is the kind of thing that I think frustrates a lot of people, not just in Kenya, but in many African countries. Why aren't they giving more of these contracts to local providers and local producers and construction companies in order to build that local capacity? I can understand that building an expressway like this might require a scale and an engineering that may exceed some of the local capacities. But building a road the way that Mombasa Road is, which is basically just a standard road, that doesn't make any sense to me why they're doing that. And over and over again, you see these contracts that could go to local construction companies go to the Chinese. Yeah, I think it's an important issue. And it's an interesting one in relation to the, the role of the Kenyan government. Like it would be very interesting to see what the structure of the original um, expressway deal was, and whether the Mombasa Road kind of aspect of it was was folded into that deal, uh, or whether they were completely two separately negotiated deals. I I don't know enough to to be able to say. Um, but you know, kind of, but or, or either way, you know, kind of, it, it, it. I think it, it's a kind of a missed opportunity to kind of to because because making making it you know drawing in more local companies would have would have been a real kind of um, goodwill bonanza. I think. Two more quick points on this before we move on. The Consumer Federation of Kenya, COFEC, they published a, a very interesting op-ed today, and, and they're calling for free expressway tolls until Mombasa Road is redone properly, which is an interesting thing. Also, people are saying, you know, that again, they should reduce the tolls initially in order to get people used to using the road and then increase them casually. People are really objecting to the tolls. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how quickly the adoption rate rises, or if it does, based on the price uh, to use this thing. 
Kobus, you talked about a contract. And one other point that I want to bring up just before we leave is there was a massive court ruling out of the High Court of Mombasa that came down late last week. The judge is forcing the government, giving them 21 days to release the terms of the contract, to publish the full contract of the Standard Gauge Railway. This is a landmark decision because the government had been fighting just tooth and nail to keep that contract secret. They invented all of these reasons from national security to uh, the non-disclosure agreements to all of these different things. One after another, they made excuses for why this contract should be secret and should not be subject to the same laws, by the way, that are on the books for all other procurement contracts. Well, the judge out of the High Court of Mombasa said this contract does not supersede constitutional law and must adhere immediately to the Constitution and the procurement laws as they are today on the books. And so civil society registered a huge win, and the credit needs to go to two civil society activists who fought bitterly for the past year to force this to happen. A lot of people did not think it was going to happen. And in many ways, Kobus, this is another example of Kenya's dynamic civil society that has forced the hand of the government on Chinese-related projects. The first one being, of course, the Lamu coal-fired power station that the group called Decolonize uh, fought very assiduously in the local courts and won a, won, a, won a big ruling. So twice now in the past couple of years, Chinese-related projects have had setbacks in, in court. Yeah, and this is both of these victories, um, I think, set huge precedents for civil society in dealing with, with Chinese contractors all over the world. So, you know, kind of it's, it's going to be interesting to see how other similarly opaque contracts are going to be handled in the future based on this precedent. And let's hope that the Chinese take some lessons from this, that the contract hopefully in less than 21 days, because the ruling was given a few days ago, so in about two and a half weeks, hopefully we're going to see the contract published. The sun will come up the next day, life will move on, and hopefully it will start to take the edge off the Chinese and being so opaque in their dealings around the world. We need to see these contracts. Taxpayers of all shades need to see this, these contracts, not just taxpayers in the countries that are impacted, but even taxpayers in the global north who oftentimes then have to come in through the IMF, the World Bank, and other Paris Club vehicles to do bailouts. Everybody has a stake in this. And so, again, we're not putting the burden exclusively on the Chinese for opacity, but as we've talked about repeatedly on this program, Western lenders and international creditors and multilaterals are also opaque. But in this particular instance, the Chinese take the opacity to a much higher level. And let's hope that this goes well and the sun rises and everything is just the way it just kind of moves forward. And again, we can maybe ease off some of these non-disclosure clauses that have been so punishing in terms of understanding what's in these contracts. Yeah, I also think so. I think, you know, it's just for just for the the kind of health of development in, in the global south, you know, transparency is, is crucial. Um, and as we've seen, you know, kind of in the Kenyan sand gauge railway case specifically, if there is such high levels of, of, of opacity, then that makes it just too easy to you know, to, to for all kinds of shenanigans behind behind the behind closed doors. You know, there's been lots of allegations about possible padding of, of the contracts, which we will now see, you know, kind of how that pans out. Um but yeah, I think it's it's a it's a really important victory. And these contracts are also the subject of the Kenyan election. So just as we talked about in the case of Nigeria, where China often becomes a campaign issue, keep an eye out in Kenya where 
the, the major candidates are making a lot of these contracts and how they're going to handle different uh, Chinese loans and debt and all these different issues. Bear in mind, too, that when you see the questions of Chinese debt, both in Nigeria and Kenya, in Nigeria, it stands at about three to four percent, depending on how you calculate it. And in Kenya, it's about nine to 10 percent of the total. So oftentimes the role of Chinese debt is vastly overstated relative to its broader share. It's a very high percentage of the bilateral debt but a single-digit share of the total public debt. So something just to keep in mind. Let's keep the conversation there for now. We have some very big news later in the week. We are making the change from the China Africa Project to the China Global South Project. Cobus, you announced it last week in our newsletter and on our website. Uh, we're going to do a special show this week to tell you a little bit more about what's behind this change, why we've decided to do it, how it's an evolution, and how it's really not going to radically change much of what we do. We're just going to be broadening out our discussion of what China's doing in the Global South with Africa still at the core of it, but also talking about events in ASEAN, South America, here in Southeast Asia and elsewhere in order to put a broader context to it. Also, very quickly, we're going to keep this podcast going. So Fridays, you'll have this in your feed, but on our early in the week, our, our usually publish on Tuesday or Wednesday, we're going to put a different discussion with uh, you know someone from the Global South from another region. So it's going to be our Global South podcast. So those of you subscribing on the Africa feed will continue to get it. We're going to create a separate feed also just for the Global South podcast. So if you're just listening to this and you've subscribed, you'll get both podcasts. We hope that you'll enjoy it. And of course, we would love to get your feedback from you as we make this transition because we're really doing this to better serve you. Uh, you can reach me anytime at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. Please feel free to write me. I love having these exchanges. As I've mentioned previously, people are surprised that when they write, they get long emails back and we have these very robust discussions. So it's always great to have these, these wonderful types of exchanges with our listeners. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for listening. And again, thank you to all of you who are supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. And of course, to all of our subscribers. Uh, so that'll do it. So we'll be back later this week with another edition of the show. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.